And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. That, that was a really, uh, that was a really enthusiastic hey. Uh, I think I drank something with caffeine in it and got very excited for a second. But we can, we can keep it. We'll keep it there. Why not? Why not be excited on a Tuesday afternoon or morning or whenever you're listening to it? Maybe it's Wednesday or maybe you're listening for some insane reason. Uh, you're just binging uh, on, on episodes of the moment and it's some other day. It could be really any one of seven. Anyway, I was excited. I'm still excited. John Lovett is going to be here soon. And uh, I love this guy. Lovett is one of the most impressive dudes uh, I've ever met. He, uh, at a very, very young age, um, was speechwriter, I think kind of right out of college after doing stand up for a little while, speechwriter for Hillary Clinton uh, in the 2008 campaign, and then hired to be a speechwriter for the president of the United States uh, as soon as they took office and worked on many State of the Union addresses, wrote some landmark speeches about really important issues. And was really known as the funny guy in the White House. And before the age of 30, he left that to go into show business. Maybe he's not that smart, actually, after all, if you think about it. Uh, but uh, he left, I think, as the second term started and created a television show that ran last year with Josh Gad. And, uh, and just now has been working on the newsroom. And I'm really excited to have John here. You know, most of the guests have, on this show have been people who've been a lot of setbacks, have worked on things, and have had a lot of failure and rose again. And and this is somebody who uh, I'm sure, as as he sees it on the ground forensically, I'm sure he's seen a lot of sort of um, spikes and and falls. And I'm really interested in how he processes those things, but also on what it took to, at such a young age, find himself really at the center of the world. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, I imagine he's going to make funny, fun of me a little bit because uh, it's just what he does. And thanks so much for being here and listening. Thanks for uh, all the kind comments on Twitter. Thanks for reaching out to me and telling me what you dig and what you don't. Thanks for interacting. It's really uh, a lot of what I love uh, about doing this. Thanks. Love it. will be here in a second. Love it is now putting on. I introduced you already, dude. I I said nice things about you, but cool. which I kind of want to take back now. All right, because you showed up and I went in just to give you a little like, hey man, hug, and 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 you were like, it's it's hot out. Yeah, and 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 then then you could have left it at hot out, but then what did you have to add? Oh, I said that uh, uh, even if it weren't hot, I would not want to hug you. Yeah, you said no hugging, and that you had a whole theory, and I'm, I I would say. I I probably go. Th- I don't, I'm not. Uh, I'm no Leo Buscalia, but I go through my day probably. You know, hugging people I'm friends with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. For, well, first of all, I actually don't have a problem with hugging. The thing is, it's not about having a problem with hugging. It's about uh, I never chose the hug as the greeting we all do, and neither did you, and neither did we. We used to shake hands. Uh People shook hands. I mean, two people meeting for a podcast. Well, people wouldn't meet for a podcast, but what, what they'd meet for the equivalent. Back then, you mean? Would meet for the equivalent? Meet which was, in a I guess, podcast. The equivalent would be throwing rocks off a cliff or whatever it was that people did. 
they shook hands or they did some other form of greeting. I have a problem with the idea that my thinking that a hug is maybe extra on a day to day. To you, it's intimate. It's intimate and it's and, and it's an externality that I didn't choose. So it's like it's like people who don't use cell phones, people who don't use cell phones. At first, they were normal. Then they were a little odd. And now it's seen as some kind of statement. Now, it is, it's an yeah. affectation. And it is right. It is. But they didn't change. Things changed around them. Now, we have to adapt when things change. And I probably should hug people. Hello. And I do. I do it plenty. You uh, have hugged me. Hello. I uh, Yes. I just it was a hot day. No, no, I understand. But uh, but but I would say uh, not to just immediately poke holes in your logic as I'm trying not to take it personally and worry that I didn't maybe apply correctly deodorant or powder. But I think I did, mm-hmm. uh, which is that none of those gestures were chosen. The handshake wasn't chosen. Sure. The handshake developed, uh, people think, as a way to show that y- you were unarmed the, as the smile uh, there were some purpose for bearing your t- teeth as well to show that you weren't uh, carrying a foreign object or something that could maybe harm the king. And uh, who knows how we develop these gestures, but there ha- I would say that in a world that's so generally spread out and where people can be friends without having interpersonal contact, that a certain, some gesture of, hey, we're human, we're connecting in this way, to me, uh, is uh, at times... <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I you know, I don't want to. It sounds so crazy. to have. A, I don't actually even have a problem with it at all. I definitely don't like it that much. I do think it's very intimate. Um, but my, I, I think and I think everything you're saying is true. And it is just a it is just a meaningless gesture. But it is it seems almost as though it's come out of the fact that we've forgotten the rules. Like there used to be we we don't none of us really know the rules anymore like we don't know who you're supposed to tip or not tip we don't know how to greet people of various levels of intimacy in our lives and we're all flying a little bit blind and because we're flying blind we overcompensate and so you hug someone after a business lunch and and yes, so my- and sometimes that's odd i agree with you sometimes that's odd uh though it there is it is a little larry david to have a stance uh on this sure I would say just a li- it's a little bit um, definitive and sort of saying uh, it's it's, a, it's just a little bit. It's an affectation. It's exactly what it is, right? Uh, it's a it's a well. Here's the thing. Uh, I don't care enough to not do it, but I seem to certainly like having a position on it. You know? Yeah, no, it's crazy to have a position <laughs> on it. Uh, no, I think it's excellent. And um, and now I know. You listen. I know where we stand, so it's fine. Um, and, and I feel it's great. Uh, uh, we we don't have to even do this, really. You know, I mean, this is my first podcast, and it's it's. Let me tell you, it has started amazingly. I feel good about it. You should. This is a really great. And you, yeah. We're Are the, you always naked? We're at the Brill Building, um, only because I thought we were hugging. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only reason. But I'll I'll go in the other room and get myself together if that's important to you that I do. Um. So what I had said. So, how, 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 you like doing a podcast so far? Yeah, do, so do far it's kind of fun. Do you listen to them? Uh, no. Not, I'm not saying do you listen to this one, but do you listen to any? No. <laughs> do you listen to audiobooks? I do. I do. I prefer audio. I, 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 I can't, you know, I'll go through podcast phases where I have listened to them, but right now I'm not. I'm in an audiobook place. Uh, I like the audiobooks. Um, I rarely listen to audiobooks, but I've been listening to one that. I'm love two actually that I'm loving right now. They're and they're they're wildly different. One, the art of learning by Josh Waitskin. Mm-hmm. 
You know who Wade Skin is? No. He's the the guy that searching for Bobby Fisher's okay. about. Mm-hmm. And then he became a martial arts champ after that. And this whole learning thing is something that he takes very seriously. It's a great book. And then I'm listening to John uh, Slattery narrate, uh, or, or not narrate, what's he doing? They He's call it performing. Performing uh, Farewell to Arms. That's great. Oh, that's a good. That's a good it's choice. For terrific. So I I have come to really like audiobooks for catching up on classics. Uh, but I have to be very. I, I think I think audiobooks get a bad rap because you can very easily think you're listening to something, and it turns out you were really just thinking about other things while there was sound in the room. Um, so totally, yeah. So so I, I make a deal with myself, which is if I'm going to read this audiobook, I'm going to read it as thoroughly as I was re- as I would read a book in my hands. And so I'm constantly jumping back 30 seconds to make sure I don't miss anything. But if I keep that deal with myself, I feel very good about reading while working out or reading while going somewhere. But I really commit to not missing a thing. And will you write, will you do, like, I don't know what you do when you re- read um, with your eyes, but you know, when I read with my eyes, if there's a word, I don't know, I do circle it, like do look it up. Like I yes, do a I do, thing. I do every, exactly the same thing. And I do, I do the exact, I try to do the exact same thing when I'm reading an audiobook. And I'm actually discovered one thing, it actually just happened to me uh, while I was reading an audiobook recently. What are you reading? American Pastoral. Uh, 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 what an which, incredible book. By incredible. Yeah, incredible. incredible. Uh, but there's, and I'm not going to obviously spoil it, although it's 20 years old, but. The Swede. The Swede. Skipping the Swede. But, uh, but uh, what I found was there are moments in the book where you're surprised by something. And normally when you're reading text on a page, it's really hard to surprise yourself. Because you see the word before you've internalized the word, and by the time you've internalized the word, you've already seen it. It's a you know, you, if 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 there's a surprising turn of events or a reveal, you, it's never it's never it, when. But with an audiobook, I was told something at the moment the narrator was told something, and I got to experience the same kind of surprise, and I loved that. Yeah, the the th- I, I agree with that. And something else happened for me with them, and then we're going to turn this around and talk about just you and, and your your life. But do you guys edit this, or is it all? Not a lot of editing, unless you say something that's that you're a shame. miserable about. That's a shame. Podcasts, I love podcasts. I love listening to them. And the more unedited they are, the, the happier I am to listen Anything to Anything could happen, you know? Because they're real. Yeah. Within the you know false construct. Sure. Uh, of this, but... Yeah, is this me? I don't know. What, with audiobooks, you're going to go take this to a real meta place. But with uh, audiobooks, with with regular books, books I, I read with my eyes, printed the printed page... Books. The printed page. Books? You call them books? They were made book, on books. the old, uh, what was it? The, Gutenberg the, Press? The Gutenberg Press. With those, not Steve Gutenberg, with those uh, books, I taught myself to speed read when I was young because uh, reading was hard for me at first. I had some sort of like learning thing, and then I became a speed reader. High comprehension, speed reading, but I realized when I listen to you know, when you do that, you do collapse a lot of data. And sometimes, like in the Hemingway book, which I've read twice, the humor in the beginning of that book mm-hmm. with the the priest and those soldiers, it's like hilarious. And the way Slattery's reading it. And I definitely didn't get how funny it was when I was reading it. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's, it's the difference between reading Shakespeare and seeing Shakespeare. Uh, the experience of hearing it read it, it's in a way, the way it's meant to be experienced, even though it's written on the, it, well, here's the thing. I don't know about, I, I, All right, it's I, not. I can't take it's a not. on that. No, it isn't. End, end of thought. Let me finish. No, <laughs> I was gonna. Well, the case I was gonna make was yeah, only this. It was only that uh, when an, when it, that 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 every book is in a way being read to you uh, by the person who wrote it. You just do the reading. 
so the experience of listening to it, I mean, every book has has a narrator in some form and that and that and it's being narrated to you. You, some, you say it to yourself, but having it read to you is 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 just as intimate an, an experience, well, especially in the authors. Don't think that the, the, the for people who love to I really, you know, like, I love to read and I love to read fiction there. Nothing can really replace the for me that the, the, whatever that that voice is that um, narrates for me when I'm reading books, that mm-hmm. internal voice. Whatever that is, is the most kind of magical and the the most I can be hyper present and distant in a lot of ways. I love. See, it. like my internal narrator just sounds like some gay Jew. I don't. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> your particular situation. That's <laughs> and that just gets tiresome, you know. You, you hear your own voice. I don't know. I'm just making jokes in here. As you well, know? you should. All right, let's dive in then. Okay. Oh, now. Oh, let's get started. Uh, let's start recording. John Lovett is here, everybody. Uh, oh, good. We're recording. So. Before you came in, I, I, I talked about the fact that um, many of the guests that I have in are people who have, over a very long period of time, accomplished a bunch of stuff and had um, a bunch of real setbacks. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the reason the show's called The Moment is that what I'm interested in is the way that people who do remarkable things process big moments in their lives, either um, great things really difficult things, because I, I think I can learn from that, and I'm always interested in uh, figuring it out. You know, you're someone who's had this incredible amount of success uh, at a very young age. You've done a lot of stuff. Sure. And yes. No, I mean... Uh, and I, I just have to be fake humble. Keep if going. you can... It doesn't play. Fake humble doesn't play, especially not... They already, let me try again. Here, they already like, know who you are. Here, I'll, let me try, I'll try Here, Go. Say, say that I've accomplished a lot. Yeah, I will. I, I'll give me your, you want to give me a line? Yeah, no, no. I need you to tell me that I've accomplished a lot so that I can respond to it. Yeah, you've really accomplished a lot at a young Stop age. Stop it. No, it still doesn't play. Go. Just keep Guys going. on Twitter, tell horrible. them uh, if it plays. No, but here's the thing. Can you just take us through people who maybe don't know who you are? Um, sort of uh, how the whole thing happened for you that you went from a college student to being in the White House writing speeches for the president. Sort of what that narrative journey, what that journey was like for you and, and what made you think that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, well, so... I've never been a planner. Uh, um, I had things I, I, you know, I watched West Wing in high school and into college, and I thought, oh, that'd be cool to be a speechwriter at the White House. Uh, but it was never more fully formed than that. Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure what I wanted, but I'd be lying if I said that I didn't want a lot of something. I wanted a lot of something. I wanted to do really well in something. I wanted to be great at it. And I wanted the, I needed the acclaim of it. And you, you knew know? that at college? Yeah. At, well, you went to Williams, yes. right? You knew that at, at college or in high, high school? Uh, I think college. I think college is when I started coming into my own. Uh, did you think in, in high school, did you get along with people? You know, I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I always have had, you always have delusions of grandeur in high school, right? Uh, I think that I was an odd kid and I think... There was too much preventing me from just putting one foot in front of the other to worry about anything else. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm wearing sweatpants. It's 11th grade. You know, <laughs> things are rough. Uh, you know, I figured out that I like boys. This is a secret. Uh, and it's not the reason that I'm a disaster. You know, it's like this secret, which I'm sure will mean everyone will make fun of me, was not the reason everyone was already making fun of me. Right. <laughs> so so I, I don't I think, you know, high school was a survival thing. Uh, there were times when I had friends. There were times when I had no friends, uh, all of which I deserved because I was... What do you mean you deserved it? I, I mean that I, I don't think that I would have wanted to be friends with me in high school. 
you know, I was, uh, I think, shy, obnoxious, a know-it-all, all because I was covering and protecting, right? There's a lot of covering and protecting. Um, and then once I got into college, I think I started coming into my own a little bit. And I, uh, I ended up running for class speaker my senior year. Um, I felt confident. I thought of myself as sort of a, you know, classical. And uh, <laughs> I, I ran for class speaker and I won and I gave the speech at graduation, which was fine, but it got laughs. And I really like that. I really like the way that felt. And I just decided that day, all right, now this is college graduation. I have no plan. And I decided that day that I'm going to maybe try to do stand-up in New York. That from college, you're like, I can do this. I can do stand-up. Yes. Because you had these, I'm asking, this. you said the West Wing, and you've told me this before. So I, I mean, that the West Wing sort of made you, had this vague idea, like, I could be, a spe- that seems like an awesome thing. And yeah. I care about the, and you did, you had like these twin paths, it seems like, that were possibilities for you. Um or, or different paths out like one which was comedy and the other which was some kind of uh statesman like thing right? yeah there was a, right so there was, there was there was politics and there was entertainment there was politics and there was comedy and then there was this third little offshoot of math and i did math a lot in, in in college and i thought maybe i would do that but i was always very aware that i i could be maybe the most socially adjusted math major but not the best one and i i just i hit a place where i realized that oh I could, I'm like the best person at math who's not actually as good at math as these people that are crazy good at math that have a gift that I don't understand. Uh, and so I sort of put that aside. Well, for a very smart person, what's that? I mean, for a very smart person, no, for a very smart person the uh, who most of the time, smartest person in the room, that's most not, of the time. No, that's not true. Often. That's no, no, often. When you see that, what does it feel like to you? Did You didn't see it as a thing limiting you as much as you saw it as like, there's this special thing about them that I just don't have. Not accepting this whole premise that you've offered. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it's always, it was uh, people that are exceptionally gifted at math are so strange and their talent is so special. It's really interesting to observe. You know, one of these kids that could put a Rubik's Cube behind his back and do it, you know? Yeah. And just... Thinking in people that are thinking naturally in four dimensions, right? Like, oh, there's another dimension. I get it. Do you? You get it? <laughs> yeah. Another one? get it. Yeah. Where, where? It's not up. It's not right. left. What do you mean? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so math was just fun. It was a diversion. Uh, I liked the challenge of it. It was math and philosophy were two things that I felt just force your brain to get tougher and smarter. Uh, and I'm very lucky for that. I think in any ways that I'm rigorous, I owe that to math and then to a lesser extent, some of the philosophy that I sort of Do read you consider yourself rigorous? Uh, at my best, I consider myself to be very intellectually rigorous and objective. I try to do that. I do. I think I can get, I can get emotional and I can get partisan and I can lose sight of things. But at my best, I think I can be very rigorous and that's something I take pride in. I think that's part of what made me good as a speechwriter because I'm not the best writer in the world uh, and I, I don't have, I have my, my, my discipline is more of a creative person's discipline than of a professional's discipline. Um, and I, as a speechwriter, all of my best writing I would do in these bursts, right. Which didn't always lend itself, uh, to the best, uh, work product because at the end of such a burst you may say to yourself well this could have been better but the speech is in an hour you know that kind of thing yeah. but at my best I, I consider myself to be very rigorous and i think that was an advantage for me it, it, it was it, it was why i was able to succeed um 
in that world. Um, but yeah. so to go back to, back, back. so you were at, but is it, is it in college that you really discovered that sense of rigor or that was always just a part of the package for you? Like you I don't know. were able I think, to work hard. I, I, uh, I think that I was learning it. I think I had to learn it. I don't, I think if, if I go back and look at things I was writing, then they're terrible and they're not very, they're not very thoughtful. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm very lucky to be where I was. I think, uh, that, um, I ended up being, you know, reasonably good speechwriter, but I don't think I was when I started. And I think it was by luck and circumstance that I made it through an early phase. So take us back okay. to the so, biography. So you decide you really don't. So you really didn't know. I want to just be because people um, ask me all the time these questions about, uh, you know, plan like sort of planning their career or, or is what I major in matter or what should I do right out of college? So you what what were you thinking you were going to be uh, or do? I was the day college all ended? over the place. I will tell you. Okay. Just to give you a sense about how all over the place I was, my friend Sam and I had a plan. We were going to be paralegals in Alaska. That was our plan. And, and by the way, think about how stupid that is. That's a show. Think about how stupid and short-sighted and narrow-minded we were that we could have done anything we wanted to do in the world. We had the idea of going to Alaska, which is exciting. And the best that our feeble, <laughs> little college minds could come up with is getting jobs as paralegals, not writers, not even something even, I mean, the be we were going to be paralegals? That was a plan. It, was a, it wasn't a day of conversation. It was something we were considering for like, it was a week. <laughs> it was a week. A week of but, your life. But that's how little thought I was giving get to what I wanted to do. Uh, but So what I ended up doing is I, I thought that I liked this idea of being a performer. Now, I remember at this time, the same friend, he and I had a little deal. And the deal was this. Uh, his job was to remind me that... I may be funny enough to be a funny professional, but I was not funny enough to be professionally funny. And I needed to remember that. And that, and I told him at the time, like, there's going to become a moment. There's going to come a moment where I've convinced myself that I am able to do this. And your job is to tell me I'm not. And when did you make this feel like sophomore like year? 20, uh, senior year. I think uh, senior year yeah. of college when we're figuring all this out. And to his great credit, years later is like, I mean, you know, seven years later, we talked about this when I was deciding whether or not to leave uh, the White House to go uh, to L.A. And we had this very frank conversation where he said, you know, it's my job <laughs> as your friend to tell you this thing that you that I promised I would tell you. But I really am not sure if it's true. And so I don't think it should stop you from going. That was the idea. We had a perfectly very, said it was perfectly sure you guys said. had a whole long conversation yes, about yes, it. So but perfectly said so. You, but you give the speech, it goes over incredibly well. well. Everybody laughs. Yes. And so I decide that what I'm going to... So what I do is I move to New York. I get a job as a temp paralegal, filling out the and only thing that I believe Part of your fantasy it. coming My true. Fantasy of being, uh, what was wrong? That was the best that I could do. The whole world. It was the equivalent of moving to... Like, moving to a retirement community in Florida. You know, like, there's the... I, I, the whole world is mine, and I wanted to be a paralegal. Uh, listen, you, you wanted to go to Alaska. You couldn't. It was you didn't want to sentence yourself to a life as I could. Cycle, you don't want to sentence yourself to a life like I'm going to be a lawyer, and sort of cut off uh, these certain possibilities. But I thought maybe lawyer, lawyer could happen. Yeah. Anyway, sure. so uh, I moved to New York and I get a job as a temp paralegal, uh, uh, and I get stationed at uh, one of these firms that does the asbestos lawsuits. So by day, I would fill out these asbestos lawsuits. So people would call in, they'd call the number. I don't know exactly how the process worked. I was... It, was it Whites in Luxembourg? 
uh, I don't want to say the name of the firm. Uh, was it that firm? I said I don't want to say the name. No, because uh, Perry White's, if it is that firm, uh, is an, I've not been friends with for my entire life. Uh, it and may be that firm. I wonder if he knows. That it doesn't matter if this. it is that firm. Yeah. But let's say it is. Uh, I'm sure all these places are the same. Uh, I don't even understand the process, and I don't really remember the details of it. But somehow it was there were there were these more senior full time paralegals or legal assistants who would fill out all these forms from the people that were trying to be clients who had called the number, I guess. And then it was our job to somehow correct them to go through and fill out these forms. Because basically all these people were just trying to get money out of this fund and the forms had to be correct to get the money. We would sort of check the forms. It was a very, so it was me and three people in a, in a, in one room. Uh, sometimes it was a windowless room. Occasionally they moved us to a room of the window and it was, we didn't get, we didn't have computers. We just sat there. And there was an inbox and an outbox. And all we desperately wanted to do was get to the bottom of the incoming so that we could have some time as a, for a break. So we would just race through these. I mean, you were living in office space, Dilbert life. So so we would just sit there. And, and these were really interesting people, actually. One of them was trying to start a bakery. The other was a writer. Um, uh, and others came and went. Uh, but we'd have these time to talk when we'd have time to talk when we would get to the bottom of the in pile. But there was always more. It was it was it was really an, an emotional assault, and it was totally unpredictable. So there'd be an hour and nothing, and then three women would come in with forty, and that would be the rest of our day. And we'd punch in and punch out. And I I did that for months. I don't I, I did that for months and months. Were you writing jokes? Uh, not during the day. Then then sometimes I would, but but basically then by night I would go to open mics around the city, uh, and try my hand at stand up. And I did that for the better part of a year. What year is this? This is two. This is I graduated in May of 2004. I moved to the city right after, so it's June 2004 till late in the fall 2004. And then I ended up, so I ended up coming back for a time. I was back and forth, but this was basically the better part of a year. There was a brief stint in the middle where I interned for the Kerry campaign, uh, and so I'm doing this for about six, five, six months. Did you like doing stand up? I did. I, I was liking it more and more, um, but I was at the point where, so first of all, there, so so two things happened. One, I got to the point where uh, I didn't want to pay to do these open mics anymore, but I had to do bringer shows. I'm sure this is how it goes. And I was running out of friends to get to come to these things so that I could have my five minutes. And I was at the point where I had to either like go on the street and try to get people or give up, and I was very much leaning towards giving up. You couldn't bark. You wouldn't be I a barker. I couldn't do it, and I and but I also decided that I, I didn't actually like doing it enough. I liked the challenge of it, and I liked getting a little bit better at it, and I'm, I was still very amateur by the end, but I, I, I liked that, but I, I realized actually that I didn't want to do it. It wasn't something that I wanted to devote. Uh, I didn't want to, I didn't care enough about it to be humiliated to do it, and and if I wanted it, I should have been. When you it's do it totally... for a year, you find out that it's really a, a, a five-year thing at minimum to get um, to find out how good at it you can be. Yeah, and and I just I, I I sort of never I realized that I didn't want it. I just didn't care that much. I liked the skill, and, but and I, at that what was going through your head at that time? Uh, like professionally, were you? I was applying. Oh, in terms of what I was going to do next? Yeah, like what were I was going to. I was applying to law school. Okay, I decided that that was what I should do. I should go to law school. Uh, but anyway, in the middle of this year, a friend of mine tells me that they're looking for interns at the Kerry campaign. Uh, so I signed up and I went down uh, for the very, very end of the campaign. At, by this point, a bunch of the interns, I think, had already been hired to real-time, real jobs and shipped off to the various states. 
like the very like last two months of the campaign. And so there were very few interns left in the headquarters and I was one of them. And it's, it's like the old thing, uh, when you're a painter, if you show up sober, they make you foreman, that old joke. I was competent. You know, I, I could get the coffee and do the clips with enough time to say, Hey, let me try writing something. Let me try writing something. Let me try writing something. And they did wrote a few op-eds that I'm sure were awful, but passable in terms of what an intern at that time was doing. Uh, I wrote a few state, there were a few hurricanes that year. And so I ended up writing, drafting the statements for Senator Kerry to give about Hurricane Ivan and a few others. Um, and nothing came of this, of this, right? The campaign ends. I actually end up going to Florida for a week. I come home, the campaign ends. But months later, the person I interned for, now I'm back in New York and I'm doing the same thing. Uh, I've been, I think I've moved to another kind of paralegaling by this point. I'm answering phones at a different law firm. Uh, this was actually great because the HR department made sure that there was a temp on any desk where there was an absent uh, assistant. But the, the lawyers had no use for these temps who knew nothing. I didn't even right. know how to use the phones. So I just sat there all day filling out law school applications, getting paid. I thought it was the coolest right. the thing in the world. The lawyers went through the whole... Uh, they didn't yeah. bother with you. We, yeah. I wanted to back up with one thing, which is when you said you wrote a couple op-eds, you mean op-eds under Carrie's name. So in the... I don't know... It's just an interesting thing. I don't know if people understand how well, that works. Well, I think what happened was you would write it under... You would write op-eds in no one's... And sometimes they'd be in Carrie's name. Sometimes they'd be in surrogate's names. And then they'd just go up the food chain to the speechwriting office or other offices that would do campaigns are producing so much language in the voice of their candidates, uh, especially presidential campaigns, especially at regional papers, but I'm not sure how much this still happens because this was now a while ago. Uh, and a lot of this dynamic has changed, but then you, the, you were so anxious to try to get things into these regional papers that you just needed content. And so what would happen is someone at a higher level would draft talking points and then you just take the state information and shove it into this thing. And you'd end up with a, a, a very boring op-ed that ran through the talking points that they could ostensibly say was in the name of the candidate or in the name of a top surrogate and just ship it off to, you know, the, 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 the news and gazette in some city. Did you like doing that? It was fun. I, I took it very seriously. I took it very seriously. I thought it was important. I was having this chance to write. I was really trying to show off, uh, which I'm sure meant that these things were really over the top, but they may have been over the top, but there's still something good about them for people to remember. So they were not usable. They had to be rewritten. But hey, maybe this person's not the worst, you know? He's certainly better than the intern who's <laughs> fell over, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe is drunk this morning, right? Um, so anyway, months later, I'm back in New York, I'm doing this. And the person I interned for uh, sends me an email that says, do you want to come intern on the Hill? Now, as a sign of how little I really cared about, how, how little a plan I had, I replied saying, no, I'm not going to intern anymore. If you want to pay me, you can pay me, but I need a job. I didn't. I could have. It was a bluff. Like, I could have gone and stayed on a friend's couch and interned. And by all accounts, if that was what was offered, I should have done it. But I bluffed. And I said, no. And then I, I didn't hear back. And then I think a month later, I get an email saying, okay, uh, will you come down to interview for a paying position? And I said, of course. That's amazing. Thank you. And was the Sam Seaborn fantasy kind of still in your head at that point? A little. A little. Uh, I mean, writing the speeches, when you were doing that, what, did, did you say to yourself, like, oh, in some way this answers this sort of, like, um, thing that I had in this subconsciously I, when I was young? Sure. I think that was part of it. But also what was going through my mind is I had uh, um, not been the best of temps in my last temp gig. Sure. And I think that I was either about to be fired or dismissed that morning. But but I guess, I guess what I kind of want to, what I'm trying to get to, I understand that part, but I, what, I guess what I want to get to is... Um, you're somebody who cares a lot now about a lot of stuff with the way that the country and the world is organized and, and yeah. run. Okay. 
and I'm I'm wondering if that was there but kind of hidden under a lot of stuff if in the beginning that wasn't there it was just like hey this is like engaging and fun and challenging or were you already beginning to have your own theology about this stuff as you were taking these gigs? I don't gigs? think I knew anything. I think okay. I was just, a, I was 22 and I was just, oh, I was a mess. I was a mess. I could barely keep a temp job. It was by great fortune that this opportunity came when it did because I was about to have no job in New York. And But you weren't um like at that time passionate about the candidates the, the the possibility of change that wasn't like um for f foremost in your mind then. uh i don't think so i mean I, I think i would get myself excited i mean i i think the fact that i got myself excited about the notion of president Kerry, i i was young <laughs> because i was like this is uh, uh, but but i think even then i was not that wasn't what was driving me i don't really know what was i think i i was really feeling around i didn't know what were I you reading the papers a lot were you reading uh, history a lot. Um, were you were you like no? I mean, you know what I'm saying. Were you diving into that stuff? No, right. I don't know. I was not. I was a no. I don't know what I was doing. M more watching or listening to funny like funny sure. movies, comedy. I, I was watching. I'll tell you when I when on the days when the temp agency didn't call, I watched all of the the original Office. Right. Um, including the Christmas special. Perfect. And if you didn't watch Christmas special, what are you doing? It's perfect show. Perfect that show. Was a perfect show. Yeah. Perfect show. Uh. I would get, I mean, on the days when I didn't, this was not, oh, you know what happened then? I'll tell you what happened then. Air America Radio launched. And so I was reading books by Al Franken at this time. Right. Al Franken, very formative, very important to me at this time. The Truth with Jokes and Lies and the Lying Liars right. were both great books. I, I maybe one of them or both of them came out then. I was very excited when that radio show started. And I very much, and I, oh man, I went and I bought a radio. <laughs> This is sounding like it's sounding so old. Yeah, this is just but 2005. Is this, I mean, 2004, is this 2005? Four or five. Four or five. It must, I don't remember which. It's it's sometime in that year. Uh, but I went out and had to get a radio so that I could listen to the first day of Air America, which was really important to me. Really mattered that we were launching this liberal radio channel. I really cared about that. Um, and so I... I remember, and the and the first broadcast of the Rachel Maddow was this. This was Rachel Maddow, but I didn't know who that was. All I knew was Al, was Al Franken. I think Mark Maron. Mark Maron's in, Mark was in the Maron, morning. Yes. Mark Maron was in the morning. But yeah. all I cared about was Al Franken's show, and I listened to the first day. And if you remember the first day, BB Newworth yeah. played Ann Coulter. And I don't remember this. Yeah, I, mean, I listened I to this whole first thing. I, I went to the pizza place across from my building, and I came back and I listened to the whole first broadcast of Al Franken's radio show, uh, and. Uh, in it, B.B. Newworth played the part of Ann Coulter, and for the entire first episode, she was locked in a closet. Awesome. And I, it was it just hearing that voice was very important to me at this time. It was very, it mattered to me. I cared about it. So there, you're right. That was the beginning of you. That mattered. I, because it's interesting is, is that, you know, three and a half years from this point... You were in the White House writing speeches for the president. That's so cool. it, when you think about that, it's crazy, right? When you know, that's business. why I'm. I still, that's why I'm drilling down into even, like where you look, were. Even the people I worked with at the White House will tell you that I had no business being there. I had no business being there. How? I mean, I'm I'm riding my electric bicycle in my Charles Darwin T-shirt up West Exec Drive at 10 o'clock in the morning because I was up till three in the morning writing the most pre the previous uh, speech the night before. Uh, I had no business being there. So anyway, I'm listening to Air America Radio. I'm very passionate about that for some reason. Uh, I end up going down to D.C. and working for then-Senator John Corzine. This was my first experience. I was a press assistant. Oh, 
And uh, at this time, I'm, I'm, this is May of 2005, uh, and I'm also applying to law school. Uh, so, I, And I was very focused on that because I remember I showed up for the job interview, and uh, Anthony Coley, who now I believe is still at the Treasury Department as a communications uh, person, uh, who, had, who liked me when I was his intern, uh, had brought me in for this one job to be his, his deputy, to be deputy press secretary. And he said, okay, now you got to interview the chief of staff. And I sat down with the chief of staff, and she said, uh, what do you think of the committees that Senator Corzine is on? And I said, uh, I don't know what committees he's on. And she looked at me, and she's like, you don't, you didn't do any research as to what committees he's on? You are so lucky that you're the only person being interviewed for this job. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and we both laughed, and, and, and 15 minutes later, I had the job. It was then that I learned that getting a job on the Hill was difficult. Right. But I didn't know. Right. right. Your, your lack of careerism, in yeah. a way, paid off for you because you didn't have nerves and you didn't have sort of pressure on yourself. I, right. It's, fine. It, it's, it's interesting because it's not, like, it's not like I wasn't ambitious. I'm crazy ambitious. I really do want things, but I don't care what they are, I guess. I want to make a difference, I suppose. I've just never had a really refined sense of what it is that I should be doing. Uh, yeah, I wonder when you say you're ambitious. Maybe I'm not ambitious. Well, no, I, I wonder, though, what it... What does what that mean? Amb- well, I, what I wonder is... Uh, think about Twitter. Think about sort of everything in the way in which you uh, go after stuff. I don't know. I wonder what it has to do with really your ambition is for your point of view to be recognized. I think that's all it is. I think that's right. I think that's all I care about. I just want everyone to agree with me. And until that day, I will continue to talk. You know, you, it seems to me, and I, I want to get back, like that you want a platform from which your point of view can be um, received, debated, ultimately... Yeah, I guess that's right. Heated. I just want everybody to shut up and listen. That's all that I want. Well, but but part of what that... But, you know, it's, I mean, you're very, um, you know, self-effacing in a certain way, and, and uh, but I am remembering... In a certain you're, way. So, said, well, and then in not in other ways. In other ways, not at all. But, right. but no, when you're, when you're talking about... And I think it's true, I know it's true, like sort of not having a very direct careerist approach, meaning... It wasn't like, oh, I have to find a way to get to the Hill because then if I get to there, I can get on a national campaign and I get a national... I know you had none of, uh, of that. But same token, you're someone... You once said something really fascinating to me. Um, I did? About running. And you talked about running in the rain. Uh-huh. And about why it was important to you to run in the rain. And I think that that talks... To me, talks about a certain kind of determination and work ethic. You talked about the first time you ran, what, eight miles? Mm-hmm. That's what, right. What happened? I just did it. Right? But what happened? It was, why do you run in the rain? I really wish I... Look, I, look, <laughs> no. I drop insightful nuggets constantly. I can't be expected to pick them all up after and carry them around with me. I gave it to you. You tell me what I said. It apparently had a big impact on you. No, that's, Share it no, with no, people. No, listen, I know you know. I know <laughs> I, that it's... I actually don't remember. I, I, I know... I mean, I remember the first time I ran a really long distance, and it was... I just did it. I, I went the, I'd, I'd run like three... T- I ran twice as long as I'd ever run before, and I just didn't stop. Um, what you said was, I didn't feel like a runner until I oh, knew... Yeah. Okay, go on. No, you finish it, because I'm not sure what you're going to say. I, I definitely didn't feel like a runner until I was running really long distances in the rain. Yes. Uh, and why? Uh, I don't know why. What did I say? It sounds great. Just for the love of God, no, tell, say I think it. it was because that was hard. It was hard. No, I think it... No, no. Ter- okay, it wasn't so hard. Because the rain didn't bother me and it looked cool. <laughs> Perfect. Right? <laughs> Perfect answer. Because it's cooling and just like, oh, this must mean I really run. 
right? Because if I run in the rain, I run under any circumstances. That's what I'm saying. If you run under difficult circumstances, yeah. if you're unbowed by the uh, if you're unbowed by the conditions, and you continue to do it, and yeah, tell yourself, oh no, it's not hard. That's whatever you have to tell yourself to keep going. But it does say something to me about the thing you were talking about, about um, rigor and about the way you look at yourself and accomplishment. Look, this has way. been very helpful for me psychologically. Why did I stop running and gain 20 pounds? Can we figure that out? Because that'd be helpful to me too. Well, yeah, I, I think, <laughs> first of all, I know why. Oh, okay. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> but the, it has to do with a whole bunch of stuff, but it, but but part of it has to do with the choice to be in Hollywood. Um, yeah, that's probably right. And, you know, uh, just basically abandon the best side of yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's when right. when one inside and I put when McDonald's one abandons the best right. side of oneself for mammon, uh, that's right. that's then right. that's you go to sloth. I think that's where go to sloth comes. Go from. to sloth. I went to sloth. Right, right. Uh, you look, but you look better now. Yeah, yeah, I fixed it. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying you didn't. You're you're you're, you're oh, heading yeah, yeah. the other way. Oh yeah, now. absolutely. We got to fix it. It yeah. got out of hand. Right. I, you know. Yes. This has been. A, thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, this, is, this is what we do. This, um, this is what we do here. But this is going to be like, uh, you know, like Hillary gave that interview 30 years ago where she like joked about some guy about, about this. It's like, anyway, it's funny. Well, go on. You know, go no, on. Finish the analogy. The analogy is just that uh, the uh, I'm going to deeply regret everything that I said here. Today. I, I was wondering about that a few minutes ago. Like, yeah, yeah. No, you won't regret it because oh, cool. you seem very um, uh, uh, human uh, and uh, and giving and withholding. This is good. It's you know, better than therapy, you, you, which I don't do. So maybe this will help instead. You don't? No. Never? Uh, briefly, but it was a mistake. I, it was, uh, it was, uh, I went, after I came out, I, my, my whole family went once. Well, it doesn't, yes. Sure, you have to do that. That was a you, you have to go around. Like, the, let's never do this again. Right. Let's just get dinner. <laughs> Good. Yeah, we have to go around the world once, I'm sure, right. in, in that, uh, in sure. that circumstance. Therapy someday, probably good, but <laughs> I would imagine something. Are we can, getting all this? Something to c consider, but you're you take the job on the hill for Carrie, uh huh, uh, for for Corzine, for Corzine, mm -hmm. uh, whose committees uh, you didn't know, no, and uh, still couldn't and what tell was, you. What were the responsibilities? <laughs> uh, I was deputy press secretary, so I did everything from walking a pile of press releases over to the Senate press gallery and putting one in every box of every major news outlet, up to and including. Uh, writing statements and revising speeches because he didn't have a full-time speechwriter in the Senate office at that time. Did you feel like you'd found your tribe? Uh, or a tribe that worked for you? I was only there for five or six months uh, because he was running for governor at that time and I wasn't going to go to New Jersey. I really, it was a very, uh, it was my first, it was my first job that could be described as a job in a career, right? It wasn't just temping as a paralegal or trying to be a stand-up or or anything else, being an intern on the Kerry campaign. It was a real job in a place where people are having careers, and I was one of those people. Uh, and so that was, I just learned a lot about that, about having a job and being on time and uh, uh, how to be professional. I mean, that was, it was very much about that for me. And I was learning a lot about writing. I, 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 uh, I remember, I also was learning about, I, I, uh, one of the first things, they knew that I was, you know, ostensibly funny. And so they wanted me to put jokes into some of his speeches. And I remember that uh, I got sent a commencement that he was going to be giving in the next few days. And I just did a joke pass and I put some jokes here and there. But then there was this one line in the middle of the speech that sounded to me to be so completely stupid and empty that I just thought it should just be removed. Like, so that, that it was something, it was this line. It was, I remember the, I remember the exact phrase. I don't remember exactly how it was in the speech, but the phrase was, um, 
I don't believe in a New Jersey that should go backwards. I believe that in New Jersey, we need to invest, grow, and prosper. Invest, grow, and prosper. And I just, I, 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 I sh- went to the, I think the chief of staff, I don't remember who I went to, and I just sort of said like, so I put some jokes in, but I, I thought that this line that's in the speech like three times just sounds stupid. And she said, uh, well, you don't don't take that out. That's their that's their message. That's the slogan. <laughs> that was the, the whole messaging. That for was the, the whole messaging for the campaign. Invest, grow and prosper. And uh, so that was a learning. And he won. He won. But he had to spend a lot of money to win. He had to spend a ton of money. He to had win. to invest. He spent he spent a campaign to grow invest, and grow and prosper. So he could prosper. Uh, what? A terrible slogan for a campaign. Not that catchy. So then, invest, grow. Up. I also it uses grow as a. I don't know if it's tra- it's uh, using grow as a transitive verb or if transitive. What is it? When, when, or is it? Well, he, is it commenting on grow on invest? It, no, no. It's like and we, I'm saying. We, what? And we it was no, no. It was the three things we need to do. They're all each a thing we need yeah, to do. Yeah, each need to a invest, separate thing. Right. We need to grow and we need to prosper. But uh, I think it's sort of like when people say grow the economy, it just sounds wrong. Well, it depends thing. how you use growth. So I'm saying, right, right. right. It depends on what he meant by grow. Do you mean financially grow? Yes. He didn't mean or do you mean we need to grow? Mean like, as he mean like agriculturally you know, take over Delaware? Right. <laughs> he meant nobody could have meant New Jerseyans. We all have to grow, like get bigger, uh, and gain responsibility. It meant and... economy. It had to have meant economy. This is not a good sign for a slogan. This kind of conversation. No, and also uh, I was going to say this is uh, we're in the weeds. But but as that happened, mm-hmm. and you're you're doing this and you're fixing these things. Did you get the sense of, uh, oh, I'm I'm getting good at this? I think probably I was. What's that? There's a there's a principle. What's it called? That incompetent people. The Peter principle. Is, no, no. The Peter principle is, is that you keep you going up, up to your level, level of, of incompetence. incompetence. Yeah. No, different principle. I don't know what it's called. It has a name, but I am. But but incompetent people are unable to gauge their own incompetence. So I think that's what was going on throughout this phase. Well, that's a good one. I don't know that one. I think that's just called Hollywood. No, no, it's called everything. But uh, no, but there is a name for it. Uh, and I think I was very much operating under that. I was the least able to note how bad I was doing at this job because I was so incompetent uh, as a writer. So what happened at the end of it? Uh, John Corzine wins. But by this point, I had already um, uh, interviewed or now. I uh, um, So at some point during the time that I'm working in a six month stretch for Corzine, I get an email from somebody in Senator Hillary Clinton's office saying that they're looking to hire a junior writer. Am I interested? I said, yes. I sent them some stuff that I'd written for Corzine. I think maybe even a college op-ed. This is the time we're in here. And I never heard back. But then at some point later, the communications director uh, told me that uh, Senator Clinton was going to be speaking at a roast of Barbara Walters. Are you funny? And I responded, hilarious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As you have to. You have to. Yeah. When someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Cool. Great. Yeah. Ghoster. Uh. Anyway, I wrote a bunch of jokes. Actually, this is something. This this was very important to me at the time. Um. Uh. I don't think I'm giving anything away that at that point Al Franken, not a senator, now still a radio host, would help write jokes for various candidates. Right. So, you know, a few months before, I had been listening to Al Franken in my apartment. And now it was I was on the phone with him writing jokes for Hillary Clinton. How cool was that? Great moment. Yeah. Really cool. And I made him laugh. I I don't remember what the joke. Oh, it was about Rick Lazio. It was about Rick Lazio working in a deli. (laughs) Nice. And I had him laughing about it. Uh, And which uh, felt great for you. It felt amazing. Making Al Franken laugh was one of the greatest things. Uh, And uh, but I wrote a bunch of jokes. Uh, She didn't end up going to that roast, 
But I think it kept them in my mind, kept me in their mind, because I got the job as a junior speechwriter. Uh, and so Corzine uh, resigns in, uh, after he wins his election, and then just a day or two later, I start as a junior speechwriter for Hillary Clinton. And then are you interacting with the candidate right away? Uh, a little, a little. I met her at some, some point during the during the interview process, and... Uh, which was ex- I, I very remember very little of that. It was ex- it was I was terrified. Saying, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I was uh, terrified because it's one thing to be sitting in with the chief of staff for John Corzine, but I was when I I I was so overwhelmed by meeting Hillary Clinton at that time uh, that I barely remember it. I'm sure I was incredibly nervous, and um, uh, and it's a dynamic to this day I haven't been able to escape. I think that I set my dynamic with. Senator, now Secretary Hillary Clinton, in that interview, and, and I it's never changed. It's never going to change. It's never. It's just, in the same way, you know, when you go home for Thanksgiving, you're a kid again. I am a 22, 23 year old speechwriter forever. Right. That's going to ask you. So, if Madam Secretary calls you, n- n- I'm now, as, I'm as nervous as I was during the interview. Do you that think she interview. knows that? Sure. We. It's, yes. That's, I, mean, I don't know. I. I can uh, you give her advice uh, without uh, qualifying it and saying I don't know it? Uh, can you? Well, I, can I you just be never have played that role. I've never played that role. I've never. Because I was the young speechwriter, I don't think I've ever escaped that. Was anyone else in the office uh, in a senior role? I know you were the junior speechwriter, but in a senior content kind of a role um, near your age? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think so. Uh, and what and, did that feel? Was it heady for you? Like, what did it feel like? Uh, I think that same principle applied. <laughs> My inability to know that I wasn't very good at this because I wasn't very good at this. Yeah, was a that's, real a bit, that's a little bit. That's a real life That's a little glib, though, because what I really sure want to know is like. Sure it is. Right, because um, because one thing to say, I'm not a careerist and all, all the rest of it, but at a certain point, uh, th- there had to be this realization uh, that I thought well, it was I'm incredibly starting to cool. To, I'm starting to get to the center of things. I thought it was really cool that I liked the West Wing, and now I was working for the inevitable presidential candidate and a job as speechwriter. Right, I thought that was a really cool thing. And what kind of work ethic did you have at that point? Like, what was your daily? Did you say to yourself, like, I I have to kill this? Uh, yes, but, you know, I think that I didn't know how to be a writer then. Uh, and so I would lose... It was uh, It was very hard because I didn't even know... Look, I've really never written speeches before. You know, I hadn't. I've written one for myself, one maybe one or two in high school. I'd written a few statements for a, another senator of nowhere near as much under as much scrutiny as... Senator Clinton, I had written op-eds, but now I'm, I have this blank document. I don't know anything. You know, I don't know anything. And how'd you keep it together, man? I just, I, I was, uh, uh, I think hubris was helpful. Arrogance was really helpful. Arrogance is really helpful. People that, yeah, underestimate sure. the importance of arrogance when you're, when there's a reason 25 year olds are arrogant. It's extremely necessary. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, I was, um, and uh, and by being yeah. selected, you it was co- codified in a way. At that time, by being selected, yeah, it it's like um okay, I'm supposed to be here. And there were going to be people around who were going to oversee, help me understand, you know. And oh, and and I and I wrote one thing uh, for her that everyone thought was good. That was a big thing. One of the first things I wrote, people said, "Oh, that was good." Early on, early on, uh, and and also early on, I, I borrowed a lot from living history. I would use living history. I would go when I needed a story. I would just go into that book. Which she had sure, written, yeah, 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 and find stories and just take them verbatim, 
because you're allowed to do that as a speechwriter when right. they're her words. Of course. So I would just take speech. I would just try to steal as much as I could at first and cobble things together. And then that would give me the ability to get past for a while while I was learning. And this was during the primary or before No, this the is primary? before. This is late. This is 2006. This so is before pre-campaign. Re- pre-campaign. And then for people who are, who are, um, who have this question about whether they're, f- uh, funny professionally or professionally funny, mm-hmm. people who define themselves by their sense of humor, um, and, and who use humor the way that, that you do and, and always have is both like, um, an invitation and a shield. Sure. When, <laughs> yeah, <sighs> it's not grow, invest, and whatever. Too, you know, it's um, I it's uh, I feel I feel too much on the couch. It just say, uh, no, I don't use it as an invitation of shield. Keep Go ahead, Go. say that you no, don't. I didn't. You say, can't say it. I didn't say you were wrong. Well, this is what I'm going to say. So, but the fact that. I mean, if, if you didn't listen to the show before coming in, that's on you, not on me. Right? <laughs> I definitely didn't. It's on you, not well, me. Buddy. Again, what evidence in my past that I prepare for anything right, is there? So that's not on me. None. You're here. Um, it'd be great if you, if you left. That'd be a good story, too. But no, here's, the, here's what I was going to say. Though, if the, if, uh, but for people for whom humor is bo- is that thing, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is both a, a life Just raft do and it. a parachute. Just no. what is the next sentence? And this depending clause has gone on for an hour and a half. Here's what it is. When you have to put that, when you walk away from that being the thing that defines you, even though you were the funny guy there, and you said, oh, I didn't really care about if the stand-up thing worked, did, and, be, and be, taking into account what happened, to, what you decided to do later, was it nagging at you already? No. You had, you had said, like, I'm past it. I wasn't, no, I, it, it have to be so, it would have to be more thought out than that, right? It would be more articulated than that. I was just, I'm like, I was like the joker. At this point, like I, I was not a schemer. I was just doing things. I was so and also keep in mind, I am so um, overwhelmed by this job that everything else is gone. Right. I, I'm getting in as early as I can. I, I'm taking my cues from I'm, I'm both learning how to have a job at all while doing this incredibly difficult job. Uh, I'm trying to write speeches, which I've never done before. Um, so I'm dealing both with like ordinary writer's block and also what what is this, what is a good political speech what is what should i and and um uh so I, I was just i was just swimming i mean i was just trying to stay afloat that's what i was doing during this time and everything else sort of fell up fell by the wayside there's no big thinking here about career and who i am and all the rest it's just you're just trying to do something yeah i mean the funny thing isn't even like career necessarily it's it's about um and and i because you know because i'm someone who flirted with doing that i was a comedian you know i did stand mm-hmm. up for a year and a half and and at a certain point, made a decision to walk away from it, um, and don't write comedies. Uh, and I know that some part of people who are, of me sometimes I think like, well, I didn't exactly wimp out, but uh, I, I didn't chase it down the whole way. And at various times, it was like, where oh, I did it for a year and a half. I knew how to do it. I learned how to do it, and that was okay. And I walked away. But you're saying at this point, you never thought to yourself. Oh, what happened to like the funny person, no, John? And never. you were able to be funny. In yeah, the not a single. I didn't think about that a single time. Not a single time. It has never been something that occurred to me. It, it never occurred to me then. It didn't occur to me. It was never my decision to even leave politics to go back to doing some kind of comedy writing. Or really, it wasn't even supposed to be comedy. Or it was just do writing. It was never guided by a, some missed opportunity or fear that I hadn't done something I wanted to do. Never. No regret. Zero. Right. Okay. So you great. So now I'm in. So, so I'm. So I'm working for Senator Clinton, uh, and I'm trying to stay afloat. 
there's a the one communication director leaves, another comes in. She's she's much less hands-on with speechwriting. They bring on an outside speechwriter to handle some of the bigger foreign policy speeches and others, which takes a little bit of the load off, but still I'm doing the lion's share and figuring this out as I go. And slowly but surely, I think I figured it out. You know, I got... I think you figure things out. You get better and better. Yes. Um, and and uh, But uh, it wasn't until the presidential campaign starts and uh, some more seasoned speechwriters are brought on the campaign side uh, that I start to understand, like, I think one of the reasons, I think one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn as a writer was just learning that writing was really hard. I think one of the great, I think that that a lot of times, I'm sure this happens to you, people send you toasts that they want, right? They want help writing a toast for a wedding or writing a letter or whatever, a recommendation, an op-ed, anything. They send you lots of things. And often I find that these are people who are articulate and smart and then the writing they produce is, is useless, terrible writing. And I often think that the reason it's bad is simply they didn't, no one ever told them that writing was hard and that it will take you a while and there'll be a lot of frustration and you need that and you won't be done until it's been hard. And I think you can send somebody back with that piece of advice and they can come back with something a little bit better. Uh, and so I think I had to learn from other speechwriters how hard it was supposed to be and how much thought it was supposed to take and how much uh, um, uh, care and consideration each paragraph and structure and all that stuff was supposed to take. And I really had to learn that from people who had done it before. And that, so I think it's by 2007. So I, I 2006, I'm flailing. 2007, I meet speechwriters who I'm working with on a daily basis. And by then, so I'm improving as a writer and then I'm really learning 2007. And then by the end of that year, I think I felt like I Oh my got. God, you literally lived Sam Seaborn's life. Like you had to have Toby throw the speeches in your face. I think there needed to be some of that. Sure, sure. I mean, that's like the whole first um, season. This, Toby was always going, not, not ready yeah. yet. You know, there and was a, the, the, the speechwriter who's still at the White House. To Will named, Bailey, too, by the way. Speechwriter who's still at the White House uh, named Sarah Hurwitz uh, was really um, extremely helpful to me and tolerant of me. And I learned a lot from her uh, uh, were, early on. Were you starting, I want to ju- jump, were you starting to love it then? I don't think. Uh, or not. Did you did you love doing it? Did you love no. being, you didn't. It was I don't just like I'm, What? What do you mean? Love what? I, I, there were some like, aspects of it I loved. Um, I, I don't know. When you wrote something that worked, when you gave it to, oh, the, that feels to the candidate and yeah. she was pleased with it. That's a great feeling. Sure. I, I'm more, uh, uh, yes. Did you feel like you ever got into that state of flow that sometimes creative people get in of where, course. uh, where the world disappeared and like you know that that moment when you are creating when everything feels kind of right for yeah short there's that period. great thing that's flow is the best right flow is the reason to do it uh and there's those great moments when you're doing anything you can to get away from the word document you're tr- you're doing anything you can to get away from it and then all of a sudden you're away from your word document and you're like wait i was doing something fun what was i doing I'm like oh i was writing that was interesting and then you go back and you're just in it that's a great thing and that of course happens then it happens now that's writing. There are parts of writing that I like. Um, there are parts of writing that I don't like. Now, there are also parts of political work that I like and political work that I don't like. Uh, but um, what was the point of that? Well, I was saying, did you have a <laughs> sense of um, belonging and this is what I want to do? I'm in this. I or were you very, still floating along? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was very into it. I really thought... I was really, uh, you know, you develop a a, um, a kind of a, a us versus the world mentality. You're in this you're in this campaign with a bunch of people, and uh, you become very committed to that, and you become very protective of that, and that certainly happens. Uh, and 
that energy is really important for campaigns. It's what keeps people working so hard. And and I definitely had that. And then when you're around, and I want to get to the White House in one second, we'll jump forward so you're not here all day. But <laughs> when you're around people who are considered by the you know, considered great great men or great women, not mm-hmm. not that they you know in in sort of all that that in, entails. Um, is your nature to sort of approach them as as human beings and try to figure that out? Do you have to be a believer to do your job in 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 who they are and what they are? And then when they disappoint, if you're disappointed by certain things, do you does that hit you hard? Uh, yes, uh, but but I'd say so. I think. Um, uh, I always think that the job of a speechwriter is not to write speeches that you would like, uh, and it's not even to write speeches that the pe- the audience would like. Your job is to write speeches that the candidate would like, and it's their job to know what the audience wants. You write for them, they write for everybody else, and if that system is working, you'll produce the right thing. Um, so that's really important, and it helps you know subvert um, your own ego as you're doing this, and it helps you find the voice of the person you're working for. Uh, that being said, I think um, there's a lot of different skills that go into being a presidential or any kind of a political speechwriter, and um, one of them is, and, and you can have any, a combination of different ones. You know, you can be a, a great policy thinker, you can be a political mind, you can be a great writer, uh, but one of them is, you know, how in sync are you uh, with the person you're working for? Um, so John Favreau, who's chief speechwriter at the White House, he is so naturally in tune with this president that... <laughs> this is a terrible analogy. You know how in uh, um, X-Men, uh, the blue woman, what's her name? Yeah, I'm not, I, I know, I'm oh, not an X-Men. On. I'm not a huge X-Men Well, guy. anyway. Joe, do you know? Uh, uh, come on. Mystique, Mystique. Yes. Okay, Mystique. In Myst- Mystique, it takes a lot of energy for her to not look blue. And so when she does anything else in the form of someone else, she's never at 100%. Okay? She's only at 100% when she's herself. And yeah. so someone, so, so, so I think it's Magneto tells her, stop pretending to be something you're not and release your true self, right? It's the same thing I think with speechwriters. When you're trying to fill someone else's shoes, right? You're spending some energy on that, which doesn't leave all the energy you need to do great writing. But if you're naturally in tune with the person you're writing for, right? Then it's... I thought that was a great, Joe. I thought it was a good analogy. Joe liked it. He did. I like it too. To the so I think so. Yeah. So so uh, it it matters to be in sync, and the more in sync you are naturally, the less work you have to do to um, make sure that that you're to, the less work you have to do to fight your own instincts, right? Uh, and that's just part of the job. You have to fight your instincts a little bit. What you would want to do, because it doesn't matter what you. But, but do. how much do you have to believe in them? Uh, it helps. I think um, it helps. Like I could never be a speechwriter for uh, uh, somebody that I didn't think ultimately wouldn't uh, that I didn't ultimately believe. Was, yeah, there's one thing to believe in their. You also have to believe in their policies, but you also have to believe in, in their authenticity. I um, uh, you have to. Well, I don't know. I, I think uh, there there are certainly mercenary speechwriters in so Washington. Do you have to though? I'm asking. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it. Can I have a second? There are mercenary. Can I have a second, Brian Koppelman. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look at this, huh? Huh? Look, what is this? Huh? What is this? Uh, what is this law law and order? Huh? What do you want? Trying to get a? What is this? What are you? Are you? Uh, are you um, one of the Law and Order guys? <laughs> what a terrible! I mean, uh, shrink would just wait, a shrink would wait you out and let you just uh, go for as, until sure. you had to return. Um, I have to believe that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And now there are certainly times as a speechwriter where I have had to write things I disagreed with, but um, I don't think I could do that for very long 
if I didn't ultimately agree with everything else that I was doing, if I didn't ultimately believe that the cause was the right cause or the candidate was the right candidate in some sense. And I've, and I, and that's important. Having seen how the sausage is made, are you still able to believe in the sort of system of, you know, the kid who watched West Wing, like, are you still able to believe in the import and possibility of, you know, change through government of the nobility of it? I don't think I ever did believe in the nobility of it. I don't think that was ever what it is for me. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, that's not what, what gets me. That's not what operates my interest in this. I, uh, can be pretty pessimistic, but I do believe in the work and I do think it matters. And I think right now we're in a really, uh, difficult phase of politics. I think can feel hopeless, uh, but it will, of course, be that way until the moment it's not that way. Uh, and I don't know when that'll come. But I, I, I am a very, uh, I think I'm, I believe in the system in a practical way. And I think that's why I was so able to do it. That makes sense. Let's let's jump forward. You run through the campaign. You write a lot of uh, mm -hmm. deep and funny stuff. You're part of the inner world, world and workings of that campaign. Mm -hmm. And then she loses. She loses. And what are you thinking you're going to do then? And how does it, how do you end up in the White House? Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, I think, going to go for a time to the State Department. Uh, I was thinking about that. I was going to go move over there with them. What did you, was that what you, what did you do during the uh, general election? Oh man, nothing. <laughs> uh, nothing? Nothing. I really didn't do anything. I was writing, I was... Were you uh, writing a script? Did you no, write it? I, I was, I was still... Uh, Senator Clinton speechwriter. Oh, okay. Uh, but she wasn't doing much speaking. Um, so it was a kind of a, like, uh, 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 sabbatical. I mean, I was working, I'd go to the office, but there wasn't a lot to do. And I was really burnt out. Um, I was really, uh, um, burnt out at like 27 years old. I was, right? I was, it was a year. I mean, it's the longest losing campaign in history. Maybe. Yeah. I don't remember. Oh uh, yeah. What is this? This is 2008. So I'm yeah. 26. Yeah. Uh, turning 27. Uh, no, 26. And, uh, is the longest losing campaign in history. So it was grueling, yeah. you know? And uh, I didn't, I was, I think, confused. I was, it was, it was, it was me. You know, I mean, it's the closest thing to a setback, <laughs> right? Like for five seconds, I had a setback. I want my tombstone to read, never faced an obstacle. Great. That's very inspiring. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was sort of, uh, I, mean, I really wasn't doing much. I was getting lunch and wondering what I was going to do next. I mean, law school was back in the thing of this thing that was always there. Law school, law school, which I didn't really want to do. And uh, uh, then I get an email from someone in the transition saying, hey, we're going to hire one more speechwriter when we move to the White House. Are you interested in Are you interested in it? And I said, of course, of course I am. But I didn't really think I would get it, not because I thought there was any kind of indignance against Hillary people, but because I thought all else being equal, they're going to feel out everybody. They're not going to, you know, all else being right. equal, you don't pick the person who fought you. It's right. not, it's nothing wrong with that. They were actually very, I thought it was even generous to seek me out. Uh, but uh, I sent in some writing sample or something and then they emailed and they said that they were going to do a blind test. They had everyone who they, I guess, liked from the sample, which was, I don't know, two dozen, three dozen people. They had them all write the same speech, basically a college final exam here are the facts. Pre President Obama in a few months is going to go to this part of Iowa. He's going to give a speech about this set of policies at this factory facing this set of issues. Uh, give us a speech. Wow, what an intense thing. Right. And you'll and whenever you say you want to do it, you'll have five days 
from the moment. It was very much like an exam. From the moment you start, you'll tell us, we'll give you the test. <laughs> but you'll have five days, send it, up, send it to us, and it'll be anonymized into a binder. And then we're going to pick from that binder. So uh, I said I would do it. I said I would do it on a Monday because on Friday I was going to New York for the weekend. Uh, I ended up writing the thing on the Bolt bus on Friday over four hours. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Awesome. I wrote it on a Bolt bus. Uh, and <laughs> they, there was a, the, um, the, the system, uh, it was, a, they were playing a movie um, uh, on the screen. Now, you, there were headphones, jacks. And so I led a revolt of people to try to get him to turn off the main speakers because, and, and I thought I had a very coherent case, which is if you didn't bring headphones on your bus trip, it's not my problem. I don't see why I have to watch a movie because you didn't bring headphones. Why should, why isn't silence the, the standard here when you can watch a movie with headphones or not watch a movie with headphones or everyone has to watch this damn movie together, even the people that don't want to. I thought there was a reasonable argument to You're make. You're like Norma Ray in reverse. I, I swear to God, I stood up in the center aisle of the bus and I gave this speech to the whole bus and I lost. <laughs> and, yeah. just, and then everyone's like, shut up, they sit down. Out. We're watching a movie. Yeah, we're watching a movie. Shut up. So you wrote the thing. I wrote the thing during this movie. I wonder if it was a terrible movie too. Uh, I wrote it. It was snowing in New York. The Wi-Fi wasn't working. And so I ran from like 36th Street to my friend's house at 43rd Street, ran into his apartment Said, everybody shut up. <laughs> Read it one more time. Proofed it. Sent it. Uh, just in time. And then a few days later, they said uh, they wanted to meet me. And like, then you went and met, met the president. No. I never... in the pro I met uh, I met with the whole speech writing team. That was how I got the job. Uh, and anyway. what was it like the first time you met the president for you? It was... It was uh, I remember exactly what he said. Um, I think I was less nervous for that meeting because it had been now... It's now you know a couple of years later and... Um, I was a little less nervous for this meeting than I was for that first meeting with Hillary Clinton, which was literally the first person I met anyone that I saw on television, right? Right. Um, Hillary was. Hillary was. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I was very, and so, but so, uh, I was nervous, but I walked in and, uh, uh, and I remember he said, um, he, he saw me and he just started laughing and he said to Favreau, who's only, you know, a year or two older than me, he said, uh, something like, how did you find the only speechwriter that makes you look like a grizzled veteran? <laughs> That's a great line. It's a great line. And that made me say, I have a picture of that moment, actually, which really set me at ease. Uh, and then... Um, you should post that picture on Twitter when the podcast comes out. Yeah, yeah, sure. So people can see it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, you know... You, you have you post... Is it out there in the public, that picture? Yeah, yeah, I'll post it. Post the picture. I don't even know what my fun has... My, like, joke no, it'd be great. Was. People would love to see it. I'd love to see it. it. So, so you, you, uh, you have this moment with the president. Yeah, very cool. And what did it feel like to you to be... In the White House, like the first day, was it so, like an American president when Sidney Allen Wade shows up at the White House? It was very much like a, uh, it it was, uh, it felt like, um, uh, it really, uh, I think a chip on my shoulder that I'd been carrying around maybe my whole life, it actually fell off. And like, it's this really funny thing of, you know, they say, oh, experiences really don't determine who you are and your happiness is not, should be internal, not external. This was one of those moments where I just went, gunk. I just did a thing of, I did the Jay-Z thing. And uh, the chip fell off my shoulder. And I think I was just instantly a better person to be around from then on out. 
because I just was like, look, I made it. I did something. This I got here. That's cool. That's the best thing ever, dude. Yeah. That's I, great. I am a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. I can do this. This is cool. The ironic detachment disappeared for a minute. Yeah, for a second. No, right. No, but, uh, but that, you it was were, a great it melted. feeling. The, it yeah. was a great feeling. Yeah, that thing when... And then all the other stuff comes back, right? All the other stuff, the, the you know, the, the where do I fit in this thing? How do I succeed? All that stuff comes back. But that first day was very much about like taking that chip off my shoulder, throwing it on the ground and saying goodbye. It was it's great. great that cool you thing. gave that gift to you. It was the best. I remember that vividly. I was, that was a big, and also I, 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 I've made this joke before, but if I had known that after a year of hard campaigning that I was going to get the same job, no matter who won, I would have been much less passionate about it. <laughs> so it, it validated. And also because it was a real, you know, look, I, I don't want it was, um, uh, the 30 or whatever number of people that got to be part of this test is not everybody. And they're probably very talented people that, but because it was chosen based on just pure the writing work. quality, the work. Not on the cool. fact that you're good in a room, funny, whatever, charming, whatever. right? Well, I knew somebody. Well, I did. It did. I did get in the door because I knew somebody. But the fact that it was chosen for those for those very um, good reasons uh, made it all the better. And what did it feel like? And we'll get to the end of this because I have two more, three more things that are about you know when you you left. But the first time that the president spoke as president of the United States, words that you written did you call people did you email your family did you were you just like in the flow what did it, just in it, it hit I, you uh i remember one of the first things i wrote that i was like a real because you wrote little i wrote a few little statements to get started right you gotta get comfortable <laughs> gotta get into the swing of it uh and i think i went through that you know it's a you know it there is a change and 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 it wasn't just because i had switched candidates i think even the people that worked for then senator obama would say that there was a change in the kind of writing you do when you work for president, every presidential speechwriter talks about this, that the language changes. It has to. It just becomes something else. And it's hard to describe, but um, it becomes more careful. It becomes more important. The words become more meaningful. And so you have to be, you have to choose different ones. You just do. And so you have to figure that out. That's a little bit of a learning curve. But but the, uh, the I remember he gave a speech at the National Academy of Sciences, which was a very early, so laying out a lot of different policies. And I was really proud of that thing because I had written a lot of science-related speeches for um, uh, 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 Senator Clinton and throughout that campaign. One of the one of the speeches I'm most proud of uh, was a speech that she gave at, I think, the Carnegie Institute. I think it's technically called the Carnegie Institution. Um, but uh, it was a speech on the anniversary of Sputnik laying out our science policy. And it was... It was it was a perfect speech for me to write because I just have this long running interest in science and science policy and I care about these issues and I like weaving a story about them and I like talking about Sputnik and how it related to what was happening now. Uh, anyway, it was my sweet spot and I and I cared about those things and, and, and I got to do it at the White House and I got to tell some of those kinds of stories. Uh, and I ended up doing um, most of those science-related speeches while I was there and I remember that first one and I really pulled out the stops of this is going to be something interesting you didn't write that one on the bus and no hours. i didn't write that on the bus uh although i'm sure uh i, sh I share an office with somebody and 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 i, I did i do these things i would call them and, and i actually then I, I i somebody else does this and it has i call them my panic naps what i would do is I, I i'm not somebody who can write with a lot of different things on my screen and with a lot of different research pulling things back and forth so what i would end up doing is i'd write a lot of sentences into the word document stray sentences stray thoughts stray this stray that I'd read everything that we had to read, everything that the researcher had put together, every policy they're supposed to read. I'd read, and then I just wouldn't start. It's time to start, and it's time to go, and I just don't. And then I would, I would not start writing. There's, there, then all of a sudden, there's the moment where I must begin, 
whatever that moment is, the moment at which if I don't start now, I won't have time to do a good job. Yeah. I'm pushing to the limits of what is possible. It's at that moment that I would take, take a nap. Take a nap. <laughs> good. <laughs> and so then, and then I would just, um, now that I've been thought about it, internalized things, and then I would just, uh, almost every speech I've ever written, almost anything I've ever written, um, has not been some, uh, uh, okay, I got to write five pages in five days. Let's do a page a day. It's drink a gallon of soda and then just. You've done all that other stuff. So then I can you write can it do all. it. Uh, I'm so envious. There are speechwriters uh, who can say, who can deliberately go through page by page and think about it, write a paragraph, take a break, write a paragraph, take a break. I can't. That's not the way I work. And right. I've sort of embraced it now and it's better. And so when you saw him deliver that speech. It was a great feeling. It must have been like another sort of um, moment of I'm in the right yeah, and place. Yeah, and it was, right uh, I had a while, it was um, because we had made some, oh, it was something, God, it, it, it's a reminder of how much the presidency has to deal with and how much this president had to deal with in the early days. I couldn't go. And the reason I couldn't go is because we had to make a change last minute. And we had to make a change last minute, I believe because of swine flu or some kind of a flu thing that had to be added to the speech at the last minute. So I was working on it to the last minute. And then I ended up watching it on the sort of internal White House feed. He went over there. I think he went to the National Academy of Sciences. And uh, I remember watching it and just thinking how if it was it was a great feeling. What's, what's there to say? And so how then does uh, somebody make the decision? And he and he also, I, I remember he went through it and he made changes. And it was a fascinating thing because, you know, you try to write in the voice of somebody and then they'll add something or rewrite something. And you say, well, no, that's what they sound like. Right. Yeah, so that, that he sounds, was good at it, right? This sounds just like Barack Obama. Good. <laughs> Right. So wait, so then you go through the White House, you do all this, you write State of the Union, you know, you participate in the I writing of the State of the Union. Address. I know, I remember once there was a joke about smoked salmon and locks, and I knew you wrote it. I texted you, like, nice line, and mm. you acknowledged, but that you did write it. Um, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. The one line. And, uh, the one but line. then how does somebody uh, decide, how do you decide to pull the ripcord, and I'm going to go to Hollywood and go create a show, and I, I want to... You know, someone who hasn't planned, like you said, career stuff. I mean, you're at the the center of the entire world and um, and killing it, and you decide that you want to do this other thing and be funny again. This was the closest thing I ever came to planning. I think. Uh, I it it what it was was I'd come home from work and I'd watch Louis or Thirty Rock or old Seinfelds, and all of a sudden, I think you can you tell a lot about what you want by what your kind of shower fantasies are. You know, like sure. when you're when you're you know you imagine working at the White House or you imagine being the CEO or whatever it is. All of a sudden, you know, I've made it all the way to this really cool place, and all of a sudden, I'm imagining like how cool it would be to do stand up or how cool it would be to write a TV show. And I'm having these thoughts, and 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 I'm not really sure what what I want to do. And I, I go out to LA, and I, I I meet a few people, um, but I really can't do anything. So. I couldn't decide to leave because I had no idea what I was going to do next. But I couldn't find out what to do next because I couldn't tell people I was thinking about leaving. It was this cash 22. And so finally what I did was I said, I'm going to leave. Uh, oh, and, and, and by the way, this is a decision I made. I should be honest about this. I was thinking about this in the very beginning. I knew that this was a two to three year thing from the first day. So for all my like, oh, this is so exciting. There was a, I, I was already at the point where I've been writing speeches for three years. I don't know how much longer I can really do this. This is so exciting. And, and so I remember I went to the uh, the first correspondence dinner. We wrote uh, the jokes for the president for the correspondence dinner. And after we went to one of those parties, it was so fun. You know, everyone's saying, great job. It's such a cool thing. Sure. And all these people I admired that, you know, like Judd Apatow, that kind of, you know, it was amazing. Right. It was an incredible thing. And I, I, I decided to myself that, that myself that night is, this is an amazing opportunity. 
you're going to do at least three of these. Um, but you're not going to be here. I, I, I decided that I was going to turn 29 in August of 2011. And I, so I said, all right, you're going to write, you're going to work on the third correspondence center in May of 2011. You're going to turn 29 in August of 11. You need to leave in that window so that you can have one year before you're 30 of being a young comedy writer in LA. <laughs> I really, that was a real decision I made. I made it the night, I did, I did make it that night. I made it the night of the first correspondence center in May or April, late April 2009. That's a hell of a moment in the middle of all that. I really realized that I, this is what I wanted. So I made that decision and all of a sudden, now that, that time is coming that I've set for myself. This Do you tell deadline. anybody about that decision? No. Do you write it down anywhere, memorialize no. it in any way? No. I just, I remember, you try to yeah. remember things, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, You're a young kid, you can. Yeah. Try to remember things. Uh, yeah. I tie a string around my finger. Uh, it's sort of a. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, I. Then all of a sudden, it's now May of 2011, and I've done nothing, right? I've taken no to, no action, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm like, oh well, maybe next year or whatever, you know, maybe I'll go next year. Then all of a sudden, I was like, well, what what am I doing? I, I clearly this is the what you wanted to do. You're just afraid to do it. You're not you're not able to tell anybody that what you want to do because you're afraid to say it. Or even decide to do it, and now all of a sudden I'm like pushing it to next. I, I didn't even know why I was keep. I, I obviously loved the people I worked with. I loved working at the White House. I loved working with this president. I cared about it. I was passionate about it. I was in it, but I didn't want to write speeches that much longer. And you know, it's a it's a very earnest thing. I was just sort of. I'm not going to get years at the end for the years in the middle where I didn't do the thing I wanted to do. You know, it doesn't work that way. So it was it was a truly it was a truly unironic decision. I went and I talked to Favreau, who's my very good friend, and I said, I, I think I need to do this. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave sometime in the next six months. And then I could say, uh, all right, I, I'm doing this now. I better figure out what's next. And uh, a friend of mine was an agent, and he set me up with a bunch of meetings, including a meeting at Fox. And uh, uh, one of the development execs there immediately, to his great credit, and uh, I'm very lucky for it, said, you're, you have an interesting story. Let's make a deal. Let's just give you a script deal. And um, I th because I didn't have any money or anything, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't have, I was a speechwriter in the government. I don't, I, right. I didn't have anything. It wasn't like I, I was, if I, I couldn't move, I literally would be the kind of thing where I was like trying to scrounge together security deposits. Like that's the level I was at here. And so I, I needed a job when I got to LA. I was afraid of leaving without something I was going to next. And Fox said, we'll give you this, um, uh, what's called a blind script deal. I mean, you know about this. Basically, it just says it's a deal for one 30-minute comedy script of a topic to be decided later. And that was enough to help me get to L.A. And I thought, okay, this is great. I'll move to L.A. and then figure out how to write a script. I'll download the software. you know. And, and, and to the great credit of these executives, uh, they never said, all right, what's the White House show you want to do? It was always, what are you interested in? What do you care about? Let's see what your voice is. It was very much like this. And they didn't even come to me with this notion of a White House show called 600 Pen. And I didn't, it, it came to me by coincidence. Jason Weiner, who had directed Modern Family, and Josh Gad, who was on the Book of Mormon, had this idea. I met them through happenstance. They pitched it to me. They were skeptical of, of me because I'd never been a thing before. I was skeptical of this whole idea about doing a show about the White House. But we hit it off. It started to seem like something we could do. And actually, it was, um, uh, it was Jason and I met and we had a conversation about it and realizing it wasn't going to be political. And it's a silly thing, but I had an idea for where the opening credits would be. And I got it. That was what I wanted. And you knew you could do the show. I knew I could do the show. 
And when you made that decision, you left the White House mm-hmm. to go do this because we can talk about the next time you're here in a year from now. Your 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 Hollywood career is so still young that we don't even have to really concentrate on it. But I'm uh, because we've been talking for a long time, and I want to let you go about your life and be respectful of your time. But when you left, this was my only meeting today. When you left, uh-huh. good. When you left the White House, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Did it feel like you'd completed something and you were really excited to be on to the next thing? Do you feel done with that stuff? No. No. Not at all. It's shocking. No. You miss it? Yeah. It's a recent thing. It's a recent thing. But I, uh, I keep, you know, I, I actually really, I think I'm going to take myself off of Twitter because I don't like the version of myself that appears there uh, because I think it's a little too strident and not interesting enough. <laughs> Why don't you just modulate it instead of taking yourself off? try try ask and answered i think uh (laughs) um and i i I go through that but but uh i think it's just hard i don't i'm I'm sort of i don't think the medium is what it was and i I don't know but uh, i think twitter was a place for me to kind of get a little bit of that out but uh i do miss it and i don't feel like i finished something um i still really care about it i think there was a year after where i was really glad i was gone and I was really needed well, to get that's out. That's what I was going to ask, because even throughout this whole thing, you've talked about process a lot and not about meaning. Uh-huh. Uh, but the way I, I know you, and we don't know each other super well, but we spent, you know, some time together over the past few years and on, online and talking. And uh, you do care. I think there mean the, 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 it seems to me that um, that this stuff did come to really matter to you. Yeah, that's right. And so what's the outlet for, for that? I don't know yet. But you want to find out. Yeah, I really do. I'm going to figure something out. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm really, I really don't know what to do. I am in a very, um, uh, to get heavy for a second. Washington right now is really ugly. And it's a group of people behaving as though their job is to manage decline. And um, uh, manage decline is a waste of time. And I don't want to be a part of that. But it's going to take people who um, are able to stop that or fight to stop it, at least. And I want to be part of that. And I think President Obama has done a a great job of holding back that tide. I think we're very lucky he was president during this time, despite the incredible difficulties he's had. And and despite the fact that by by no stretch of the imagination has has he been a perfect president. Um, But uh, I think the big thing next is going to be... Uh, who are the candidates and who are the people who are going to push back against um, the current dynamic? Uh, and I, I think there's already some glimmers of hope, right? I think this guy, what's his name? I think Ramesh Panaru. Is that his name? I'm not even sure if I said it right. Um, and a few others on the conservative side are putting together this kind of conservative reform movement. And, and the, truthfully, a lot of the ideas themselves aren't new. But even the idea of being more rational and honest in their dialogue, I think, is important and good. On the conservative side, I think we should answer it on the liberal side. I think there needs to be a, I think there needs to be also a liberal reform movement. Um, the debate right now about inequality is so stupid. This puerile thing about economic inequality is not a debate about, um, it's not a debate about uh, uh, tax rates. It's what it's become. Being saying inequality is a big issue is not the same as saying. Uh, this is how the tax code should look. It's a much bigger thing. That's next. Figuring that out is next. Um, you can't, yeah, you can't be surprised about the reductive nature of the, those talking points. No, you can't, but you also, I think that the, 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 there's got to be a group of people who's just, while you can't be surprised by it, you just don't accept it. Well, I mean, to me, the fact that you're going to, you know, 
roll up your sleeves as an adult now. I'm an adult. Well, as an I'm adult. I'm such an adult. Right. As an adult. That you're going to like now roll up your sleeves and a guy who, who, you know, goes running in the rain. And you're going to consciously, perhaps... Um, what do you think I should do? Oh, I think you're incredibly gifted at that thing and you should go do it. I mean, What's I think you are... Politics? I think that you are... Um, you are professionally funny. Oh. Because uh, on Twitter and in your... Uh, the professionally funny, I talk about this, John Hamburg, who's been a guest here all the time. Mm -hmm. I can't win an email exchange with John Hamburg and I, it's very hard to win one with you as well. You are prof absolutely professionally funny. Um, but boy, the day that I uh, met you was at the White House. You gave my son and me a tour. Oh, yeah. Your son's a good writer. He'll appreciate hearing that. Uh, I agree. Um, you're an you know, inspiration to him uh, in, in that area. That day that we spent at the White House was super informative to, uh, formative to him, I think. Um, but you were alive, even though you were already leaving, and we were talking about that other stuff. Uh, what I saw was a guy who was very alive and excited and proud of where he was and what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is, uh, is a unique one. And I think that, uh, it seems to me that you are in that setting, perhaps your best self. And I always think, how does somebody figure out what their best self, if you find your best self, that's what you should do. Because that's when you can make the best contributions, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know. But you love making people laugh, also. But I don't. I don't think I'm, I. I don't think comedy. You know, I don't know. It's. Uh, I really am in a very. Uh, this is a. So I leave the White House, and I think I'm gonna have some time to figure out what I want to do. And instead, I sell this show in a matter of days, uh, and I do that for a year. And I honestly think now this has been the first period of time where I've had any stretch where I've been um, completely, you know, had time to really think about what I want, I guess. I mean, I've really, I, one, of the, one of the disadvantages of bouncing around from thing to thing and just do, see, taking things as they come is I, I've never um, been that disciplined about what I want, I guess. I, I wanted to try things. I mean, I guess me deciding I wanted to try some form of entertainment was a real plan. That's, I, shouldn't, I should be fair about that. But it was never that, as much as I had decided it was, as much as it was a long-term plan, it doesn't necessarily mean it was a well-thought-out one. So I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a really, uh, I think it's a hard time to be a person who wants to care about politics. That's what it is. It's a hard time to care about politics. Well, that's exactly when the people who really care have to dive in. That's yeah. the rain, dude. Go oh. running in it. Okay. I hated right? how pat this was. This there is garbage. You go. Right back Deleted. to there. That was garbage. Right is this over? <laughs> to there. Yeah, we're done now. Okay, Listen, good. John Lovett. Uh, I mean it, by the way. You may think that uh, that's a pat thing to say, but the, the truth is that um, th that when you said that thing to me years ago, I uh, took something from it about your character, and I think it's it, it is true. I, well, don't I think, think you're, you're great. I don't think you're daunted by how hard it is, and uh, I think that you know that's when people like you have to get back in and, and really engage. Um, uh, a couple of apologies at the end. This is uh, something that uh, um, is new to the moment. Uh, I did once before. Uh, one apologies that to the everyone who loves the X-Men franchise that I don't really know it very well. Uh, I don't know uh, the word anonymized. I figured it out from the context that you used. Uh, but that's an interesting word. I'm glad that now I know it. I'm sorry I didn't know it at the time and that I didn't say I didn't know it. Uh, 
And I apologize for trying to hug you, John. I, uh, next no, time, no, it'll be a firm that. handshake next time. Isn't Are, that what men do? Two men, they, they reach out and they shake hands, you know? I've been a man for a long time, and uh, I hug. Everybody, <laughs> thanks for listening. You can find John, for the time being still, on Twitter at... At John Lovett. No H. At John Lovett, no H. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, at Brian Koppelman, also no uh, no H at all. And and John was a writer on, on Newsroom this year. We didn't talk about that, but uh, watch Newsroom when it comes on. John, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, Thank you for having me. Glad you're in town. This was fun. Be well. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.